This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, be covering the ride hailing for you on the show today as Uber and Lyft starts operating in Vancouver after getting a provincial approvals yesterday. Here's my hot question for you on Twitter today. Uber and Lyft has finally started operating. Do you actually plan to use these ride hailing services? Would you say, yeah, absolutely, these are badly needed, I'll be using Uber and Lyft, or would you say, nope, I'm not interested? At CKNW on Twitter is where you can vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there, please. At Mike Smith News on Twitter. S-M-Y-T-H. At Mike Smith News. I'll retweet the hot question of the day for you there as well, so you can find it there as well. Phone me on the buzz line on this one today. Are you planning to use Uber and Lyft? If you used the one of the ride-hailing company's services today, I'd love to hear your experience. Phone me at 604-331-BUZZ. Uh, leave me a voicemail there. We may play it later. 604 331 2899 and send me an email as well mike at cknw.com big day for people waiting for ride hailing services as uber and lyft finally up and operating in the city of vancouver today after receiving provincial approvals yesterday a lot of people are happy about that but are uber and lyft drivers treated fairly are they paid a fair wage do they get fair benefits and working conditions and will uber and lyft be forced to treat their workers better let's talk about all those issues now with my guest kim novak she is the president of the united food and commercial workers union local 1518 i'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show hi kim hi mike how you doing i'm good thanks a lot for coming on what do you think about uber and lyft up and operating in the city today Well, we're excited to have them finally here in BC. I think it's been a long awaited by the public. And so seeing the news yesterday and then how quickly they're moving to to get things up and running is very exciting. Um, Our focus, of course, in that is to ensure that drivers are protected while they are making these companies successful in our province. Okay. Are you going to be using Uber and Lyft yourself? I would love to use Uber and Lyft. That's the way you get to connect with drivers and find out how things are going for them. Okay. Are you guys trying to unionize them? We, you know what, our focus right now is to ensure that labor laws and employment standards are upheld. And part of that is the right to join a union. So if drivers are contacting us, as they have for Uber Black in, in Toronto, and apply to join our union, we would be happy to represent them. Okay, what's going on in Ontario? Because I've been reading about what's happened in Toronto. You guys managed to u- unionize any of those drivers there? It's very exciting, actually. Last week, there was a, a, an application at uh, in Toronto for Uber Black, which is their premium division, for drivers to be the first in Canada to join a union, and they have applied to join UFCW. Uh, this week wow. they had a vote on Monday, and now it's it's with the labor board. the the seal The ballots have been sealed so far, but we look forward to the outcome of that vote. It's uh, it's exciting to see that there is some progress being made and establishing workers' rights in different jurisdictions where Uber's operating. Okay. What are your concerns for people who want to drive for Uber and Lyft here in Vancouver? Do you think they'll be treated fairly and paid fairly? So our concern is that there's no standards in place. We're focused on getting employment standards upheld so that they do have access to minimum wage and they have the right to be paid for all the time that they've worked. And, you know, a question that comes up is how are Uber and Lyft going to continue to be successful with that model being in place? And I think the real focus is how are we working on ensuring that the laws that are up that are in our province 
are evolving to include this new gig economy so that ride hailing can be successful and that the workers also have their rights that can be upheld as well. Okay, this gets down to some specifics of a BC labor law, right? Because I guess it comes down to whether Uber and Lyft drivers are categorized or recognized as employees of the two companies or they're considered to be contractors. You think they should be employees, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, and what what sort of further benefits would they get if they were employees? How would that change things? Well, we see them as employees today because they are uh, reliant on the rating that Uber and Lyft have as part of their app. So the only way that they're able to pick up more rides is if Uber and Lyft have, have approved their ratings. And so we see that direct connection being a dependent relationship. And as a result of that, if they are seen to be employees, they have protection under employment standards. So that is things like being paid for the time that they're working and access to minimum wage as a, as a minimum pay rate. And, you know, flexibility and scheduling can absolutely still be something that's part of this model while still being recognized as employees under employment standards. Okay, so they would get, like right now they're, they're considered contractors, right? Yes, Uber and Lyft right. have defined them as contractors, yes. Right, right. So that means they do not get minimum wage. What else would they also get if they were employees? Would they get like vacation pay? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that we're open to the conversations about what they would have access to. But certainly under employment standards, they'd have access to vacation pay. The other big thing is workers' compensation and ensuring that those drivers are protected while they're driving and, and are covered by, by WCB in our province. Okay, I'm speaking to Kim Novak, United Food and Commercial Workers Union. I know you guys have gone to the BC Labor Relations Board and asked for Uber and Lyft drivers to be designated as employees. What's the status of that? So we had our mediation date in December, and parties and representatives from both Uber and Lyft were present, as well as uh, UFW 1518. And uh, at the end of the mediation that day, the board um, put to the employers, Uber and Lyft, to have their submissions in by January 17th in response to our application. And now we're in the process of responding to those and have our submissions due to the board on January 30th. Okay. Uber, of course, will say, no, no, these workers are not our employees. They're contractors. They they basically have a contractual relationship with us, and we don't schedule them. They work whenever they want. They turn the app on in their phone, and that's when they work. When they want to finish working, they turn the app off. So they're clearly contractors. What would you say to that? I think that the scheduling piece and the convenience piece of all of this is a really great thing, and that doesn't have to change. What does need to be established is the fact that if they are turning that app on and off and they are working in that period of time, they deserve to be paid during that period of time because well, they are working for Uber and Lyft. Yeah, but, if okay, let's say I'm driving around in my car and I'm an Uber driver and I, I click the app and now I'm working, I, I'm not obliged to pick up any passengers or anything. I go park my car, couldn't I? I mean, and then I'd be getting paid minimum wage for doing nothing. I think the, the fact that you have that rating, though, would suggest that you are driving people. And so the time that you're working within that frame and then having the rating go back to those app employers and having them determine whether or not you'll have access to rides in the future is where that employee-employer relationship is established. And what we want for these drivers is the minimum protections that other BC workers have. And so as these these big gig economy companies come to BC, and this is not just limited to Uber and Lyft, this is just kind of what's on our radar right now, we want to establish protections. And so having conversations with these companies that allow them to have their model be successful while also 
having some minimum protections in place is what we're focused on. It's not to make them unsuccessful. In fact, it's to learn from what's happened in other jurisdictions around the world where these these massive multi-million dollar lawsuits in place for the lack of taxes that have been paid by Uber and Lyft because there has been an established employee-employer relationship. Let's get ahead of that here in BC and make it successful from the beginning. Okay, well, we'll see, I guess, what the BC Labor Board has to say about it, but I don't know. It just seems like a, a too much of a bank shot for me. I don't. I don't, I can't see how you're going to be successful in this argument. But l- let me ask you about, generally speaking, do you think these ride-hailing drivers, Uber and Lyft drivers, are are paid fairly? Like, how much money do they make? I think it really is. There's a huge spectrum on that, and it depends on which jurisdiction you're driving in. It depends on what your ratings have been, and I think that's the real issue with it is that people get into it. Um, I think there, there's a lot of excitement around it, but there isn't any established clear guidelines on what it actually looks like when you're driving. And quite frankly, we wouldn't be seeing drivers applying to join a union if everything was going well. And we see that happening in Toronto. And I expect we're going to see that in other jurisdictions around the world. Uh, Are are Uber or Lyft drivers unionized anywhere in the world? There's been applications made, but in terms of actual establishing what that contract looks like, that's a work in progress. And in fact, I, I do know that there are unions and worker organizations around the world that are are talking about this very issue because drivers want the right to join a union. And if they're in an independent contract situation, that right's taken away from them. And so all workers should have the right to be able to do so. And that's what we're working to establish. Okay. Is that a no then? Is your answer a no? Like no, no, none of these drivers are unionized anywhere on the planet? It's hard for me to say the answer to that because we haven't counted the vote in Toronto. So they might be. And as soon as we count that vote, I will certainly let you know. Uh, Okay. I think that, what would you say to someone who says, look, if if I'm going to be an Uber or Lyft driver, nobody's forcing me to do this work. And if I decide that I'm driving to work anyway, and I might as well put the app on and maybe I'll make a couple of bucks while I'm driving into work. I'm just doing it part time to make a couple extra bucks on the side. That's the way that most Uber or Lyft drivers operate. Some of them are working full time, obviously, but a lot of them are just it's kind of a side hustle, you know, for people who got another job or maybe they're a student or something like that. And they would probably listen to your argument saying, like, I'm going to join a union or I got to get vacation pay or a minimum wage and think that's ridiculous. Well, first of all, we're not saying they have to join a union. We're saying we want them to have the right to join a union. And I think that the secondary point to that is that Let's like any job. I mean, there's a lot of people who have to work multiple jobs in our province right now to be able to live. And so as these app companies come in and continue to drive the convenience being the number one factor so that people are forced into situations where they need to drive on their way to work in order to be able to make enough money to live here, that's the real issue. So what we're saying is we can have an affordable ride-hailing system for the public while also ensuring that people don't have to work multiple jobs on their way to work. Okay, I'm following your, your case very closely here. Thank you very much for coming on. It's my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Okay, I appreciate it. That is Kim Novak. She is the president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union Local 1518. That's a, a big union in Canada. Okay, let's talk about the outbreak of the coronavirus now, originally reported in China, where officials desperately trying to control the outbreak. It's incredible what's happening in China right now. 13 cities there effectively under lockdown today, affecting 36 million people as health officials there trying to control the spread of this virus. Meanwhile, south of the border in the United States, a second confirmed case of the virus in Chicago, a woman there who had recently returned from the Wuhan province of China, uh, confirmed with the virus. 
No reported cases in Canada yet at this point, but of concern to us here in British Columbia. One case, the other reported case in the United States was south of the border in Washington State. Again, a traveler who had recently returned from China. This, of course, is of a great concern, I think, to everybody. Let's check in now with Dr. Bonnie Henry now. She is British Columbia's provincial health officer, and I'm very grateful to her for making the time. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much for coming on. Can you give us the latest and what you think is the most important thing for people to know? Right sure. I, you know, and um, we are seeing um, we're seeing increased number of cases in in China, in particular, and certainly other parts of the world. But I think the really important thing is that we are hearing about these. There's communication. There's openness. And you know, the second person in the United States has been appropriately isolated and is getting the treatment they need. Has been safely assessed without other people getting ill. So that's the important thing. It's really helpful to know that even though cases are increasing, that's because we're looking for it. And we're looking for it we, because we have a laboratory test. It makes it easier to detect these people. So that's the good news. Okay. Can you explain what the coronavirus is and why it's such a concern right now? Yeah, so coronaviruses are a family of viruses that we know um, they've existed for a long time. They probably come from bats originally, but they circulate in, in different animals, and only a few of them have caused illnesses in humans, and mostly the illness is a, a very mild, cold-like illness that we get. We see it in Canada every year, but this one is different, and it's different in that it's a, a family of uh, the coronaviruses that has caused serious infections in humans in the past. And it's in the same family as SARS, for example, which had, had quite devastating effects in Canada and other parts of the world, and the mers cov So that's why we're paying extra attention to this one. Okay. Is, is it treatable if someone is infected? There are no specific treatments for any of the coronaviruses, so that's one of the challenging parts. And currently, there's no vaccine to prevent you from getting it either. So uh, the important thing is to detect the symptoms early, to know what it is, to make sure you're not going to pass it on to others, and we can provide what we call supportive therapy, so making sure that people are have fluids and, and the things that they need to help them get, uh, help their body's immune system um, fight off the virus. It can be fatal in some cases, though, is that correct? It certainly can, and we're seeing yeah. that in, in China. Um, the number of people who have died is up to about 26 now. But uh, it's important to remember that most of these people are, are older, and they're people who have had underlying health conditions. And so that what is what makes anybody more susceptible to having severe infections, whether it be from coronavirus or from influenza or for the other things that, that cause respiratory illness. Okay, speaking of Dr. Bonnie Henry, she's British Columbia's provincial health officer. We're hearing stories of people going to pharmacies and drugstores in BC and buying surgical masks, and some stores are sold out. Is that something you recommend, or can a, can a surgical mask prevent someone from getting this virus? Yeah, so it probably is not worth wearing a surgical mask on the day-to-day -day business. The risk here in Canada for this virus right now is still very, very low. So, um, however, if you are somebody who's sick yourself with a respiratory virus, wearing a mask when you, if you're going in to be assessed at your doctor's office or whatever can help prevent you from transmitting it to others. 
But the important thing that we we need to remember about this and about other respiratory viruses that are circulating right now during influenza season here is the basic things that we do will protect us. So that's cleaning our hands regularly, right. whether it's with soap and water or alcohol-based hand rubs, covering your mouth when you cough, and staying away and staying away from others and home if you're sick yourself. Okay, we've got two reported cases south of the border in the United States. No cases in Canada, right, at this point? No, no confirmed cases in Canada. Do, do you think it's, it's almost inevitable, though, that there's a confirmed case at some point here in our country? I would not at all be surprised. We have a lot of people who travel back and forth from BC and from other parts of Canada to to places in China. We don't have any direct flights from Wuhan and Hebei, Hubei province where the epicenter of the outbreak is right now, but we do have direct flights into uh, YVR and into Montreal and Toronto as well from other cities in China and so we have screening uh, mechanisms put in place at those uh, at those airports, but um, it would not surprise me at all. But I think we just need to be aware. We need to be prepared. And, and like the two people in the United States, they had traveled, they recognized they had symptoms, and they called their health care provider and were connected with public health and the right testing, and it was all done safely. And that's what I expect to happen here if we have a case. Okay, the BC Center for Disease Control, I understand, has developed a diagnostic test for this virus, can can you talk a little bit about that and how that is being used? Sure. Yeah, one of the um, important and really helpful things, the Chinese government has been very proactive in sharing. They they developed, um, they found the genetic sequence of this virus quite early on, which is really helpful compared to SARS, for example, where we didn't even have a test until the outbreak was almost over. So um, having the genetic sequence, being able to develop a test, and we're doing it in partnership with labs around the world, but also with our National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. So the BCCDC can can rule out infections and, and tell if you're infected with something else, and they're develop, they've just developed the more definitive test that helps us understand if somebody does have this virus. So that's really important, and that's why it's important to connect with your healthcare provider and make sure that public health is notified and we can facilitate getting the appropriate tests. Okay, if someone is sick and they're worried, uh, what should they do? Well, if they're sick and they're worried and they've traveled, um, to particularly to uh, Wuhan area, then they need to call ahead. They can call 811. They can call their local public health office or they can call their health care provider. Tell them that they've traveled. Tell them what symptoms they are they have. And that way we can make sure that you're assessed safely for, for everybody and that you get the tests that you need. The, the test that's been developed, I mean, it could be. I think it's reassuring to know that there there's a diagnostic test available for the, for this virus. Is is it a, is it an accurate test? How long does it take to get the results? Yeah, so that that's all. With a new test, it takes a while to what we call validate it. But the results um, of the 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 initial testing that we can do here in the province that can actually rule out this. Um, specific illness is a very rapid test. It can be done within a few hours and it's done in a panel at, at the BC Center for Disease Control and that one we know and is very accurate. So if somebody tests on that one and it indicates that they might have this new coronavirus, the very definitive test takes a, a little bit longer. But in the meantime, we can start um, caring for that person and making sure they're isolated and not able to pass it on to anybody else. 
Speaking to Dr. Bonnie Henry, she's British Columbia's provincial health officer about the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, with regard to BC health facilities, let's say nurses, doctors, hospitals, are there any extra precautions being taken there? Well, the, the, the short answer is really no, because this is the time of year where we see a lot of respiratory illnesses. But we have been very proactive, in, and the BCCDC is part of this, in, in sending out messages so that everybody's aware that this is happening and to be sure that they're asking the questions about travel, because that's the risk right now. There's not widespread um, illness with this new coronavirus outside of, of specific areas, really, of China. So that's what the WHO is watching. That's what we're all watching. So um, making sure that people on the front lines are aware that they need to ask that question for somebody who has a respiratory illness and making sure that they have the personal protective equipment they need. So that's gloves and masks and gowns and eye protection so that we can safely assess somebody. Okay, listening to you is reassuring because it doesn't sound like you're too worried. Uh, People are watching this unfold in China and we see the chaos going over there and we hear about 36 million people under lockdown. It's kind of a frightening scenario, but is your message to the public that the risk here is low and the people should not be too worried about it? Yeah, well, I, I can tell you that I I was part of the response to SARS. I was in, working in Toronto at the time, and and believe me, my my heart was in my stomach when I first heard about this. But I think we can be reassured, although it seems really draconian. What the Chinese government is trying to do is contain this virus in the area that it is the epicenter right now. And although millions of people are being affected, we have to remember that the population of China is 1.4 billion. So it is important. Important for the Chinese government to protect their own population, and in doing that, they're also protecting the rest of us because people aren't going to be traveling and, and spreading that virus. So yes, um, I, I'm. Yeah, we're being vigilant, yeah. uh, but not overly concerned. I have confidence in our healthcare system. We've learned a lot of lessons since SARS, and everybody is talking regularly. We're updating people. We're making sure we have the right plans and processes in place, and and I think we can be reassured by that, but we're watching very carefully. What, what are, are there any contingency plans in place that have been developed already at the BC Centre for Disease Control or out of your office at the provincial uh, health office in case there is a, a confirmed case in British Columbia w- would would you then trigger some more airport screening or any other kind of pr- measures um, well, yes, yes and no. There, there's absolutely contingency planning going on. We've got a lot of things in place um, because, as I said, you know, I, I expect or would not at all be surprised if we have a case here in BC at some point. But a lot of it is the basic stuff that I've just talked about, making sure that the healthcare system is ready to to be able to assess and care for somebody safely. And we do that all the time. We have uh, influenza season right now. People who are hospitalized with bad cases of influenza, they're treated the same way. Those are the same things that um, help protect us from this virus as well. And we we have um, a, a very strong communication system across the country. So I'm talking with my counterparts in the other provinces at the public health agency. Um, it was supposed to be on a weekly basis, but it seems almost daily that we've been talking, keeping people up to date, keeping up to date with what's going on in China through the WHO. So um, you, we do have a lot of contingencies in place, and I, I think we can deal with this if we have it. 
Thank you for coming on. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it very much. That is uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry. She is BC's provincial health officer uh, speaking about the coronavirus outbreak. Let's talk about the Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing now. Of course, the Huawei executive arrested in Vancouver facing extradition to the United States to face fraud charges there. Her lawyer making a final pitch in court yesterday uh, to try to avoid that extradition. Let's check in now with Ian Young, the fine Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post, who's been covering the case. Ian, thanks a lot for coming on. Yeah, no problem, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for doing this. What's the latest here on the case? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we had our, our first phase of the extradition hearing this week. Uh, it was four days. Uh, and, and basically, her team was really hammering the point um, that they say that this uh, extradition case fails the test of double criminality, which is that um, to be extradited, someone must be accused of something that would constitute a crime in Canada had it been committed here. Now, her team says that's not the case with what's accused of Miss Mung, that she's accused basically of sanctions breaking, breaking US sanctions on Iran, and that's not a crime in Canada. Okay, she's got a good lawyer there, Richard Pack, who is a very well-established uh, defense lawyer in Vancouver. How did how did his perform in court? Do you think he yeah, made an impression a, on the judge? Yeah, she's got quite an incredible team. You know, we've got yeah. um, not just uh, Mr. Peck, but also David Martin. He's uh, he's he's another top-flight lawyer. Um, yeah, no, no, he gave they gave very strong performance. Um, I think that her uh, her lawyers took up a lot more time than uh, the rebuttal from um, Canada's lawyers for the Attorney General. Um, they basically took up, um, you know, about two thirds of the time. Her team, um, they put in some very detailed submissions saying uh, that this case can't be supported. You know that there's a lot of case law which shows that this can't be supported. But at the same time, you know, 99% of extradition cases do go ahead, so they're kind of, you know, pushing it uphill <laughs> to try to to try to make this case. They certainly, um, they've certainly got the hardest harder end of things. Um, in contrast, the Attorney General lawyer, um, Robert Freyta, uh, put out a very simple case. His simple case is that um, Meng Wanzhou is accused of lying to a bank to get financial services, and that is fraud. A very simple case. Okay, she, of course, is living in one of her multi-million dollar homes in, in Vancouver as part of a $10 million bail agreement. She wears a, a monitoring bracelet on her on her ankle so effectively under house arrest is her legal team fighting to have her set free that so she can go back to china what what are they asking for the judge to do here yeah this submission this week um this hearing was um demanding that she be immediately released you know that the extradition case fails um, um so badly on this double criminal criminality issue that, that, that they want her freed immediately now um Justice Heather Holmes, who's presiding over this case, she has reserved judgment. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where it goes. I think it is probably unlikely that she will be released uh, anytime soon. You know, we've got lots of hearings scheduled all the way through to the end of November. But, you know, as I said, she, they, they put up a very strong case. What would happen to her if she was extradited to the United States? She would face trial and charges there? That's right. Yes, yeah, she's yeah. Um, she's accused of uh, fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy in New York. So she'd be uh, immediately transported to New York to face trial. Speaking to Ian Young from the South China Morning Post about the Meng Wanzhou case. Ian, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the fake protesters outside the courthouse this week, which I was just extraordinary. On the day one of the hearing, as she shows up, and you've written about this, you had those protesters lined up 
all holding placards that appeared to have all been written by written out by the same person. Yeah, it was quite uh, supporting an amazing. Her. It, it was quite an amazing sideshow, wasn't it? It um, was. I, I think it was immediately clear to anyone who's been following this case that these were fake protesters. You know, they, they that for a start, honestly, that none, none of them were ethnically Chinese, and that just does yeah. not fit the description of the people who have been protesting both both for and against Ms. Meng. You know, so these were effectively non-Chinese kids, you know, in their teens and early 20s with all these identical signs. You go up and ask them, what are you doing? And um, they seem to have no real clue of what's happening. And they subsequently came out, some of them, and, uh, and told reporters that they had been paid $100 or $150 to appear in what they thought was a music video. It's not clear who actually has been paying them. Um, but... They did appear uh, quite prominently in the background of Chinese state media news reports. So um, if someone had the intention of depicting them as, uh, as, as, as a big wave of support for Ms. Meng here in Vancouver, then they kind of succeeded, at least in terms of the Chinese audience watching those big state media broadcasts. Well, that's one of the things that occurred to me, because when I first saw those, those phony protesters, I thought, who are they trying to fool? I mean, it was just so obviously staged and, and fake that anyone would see through it in a moment. But then it quickly dawned on me that maybe this is not for domestic consumption here in Canada. This is for this is for consumption back in China with the state state media broadcasting those photos, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. no one here in, 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 in Vancouver who's looking at this with sort of any sort of cynical eye would say, oh, yes, these are convincing protesters. It, it looked yeah. clearly fake. But... Um, you know, in the background of a Chinese state media broadcast, yeah, they're depicted as protesters petitioning for Ms. Meng's immediate release. And that's how they were depicted in uh, a CCTV broadcast about this case. You know, they, they, they were shown as, um, as local Canadians calling for Ms. Meng to be freed. Okay, it was interesting to, it was an interesting clue, I think, about the, uh, maybe the state or China's position on this issue by looking at some of the protest signs, though, I thought, because one of them was, let's free Michael, right? Maybe a reference to the two Michaels that have been arrested uh, by by China and continue to be detained in what appeared to be kind of a tit-for-tat kind of revenge thing for the arrest of Meng Wanzhou. Is, is China kind of angling here for some kind of prisoner swap that if we give them back Meng Wanzhou, they give us back our people? I think that is the subtext of a lot of people's understanding about what has happened to Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, that this was a retaliatory me measure um, for the treatment of Hmong and basically that they are hostages. That's the understanding of the issue. They're accused of espionage, but a lot of people, I think, outside of China um, see this as they're, they're trumped up charges, they think. And I think yeah. it's, it's clear that there's, you know, that, that there's a lot of problems with that supposition. Um, but, but yeah, this is not something that's just coming out of China, though. This is something that has been trumpeted by quite a lot of people here in, in, um, in Canada, um, uh, including John Manley, the former Deputy uh, Prime Minister, who've called effectively for a prisoner exchange, which is really quite extraordinary. I think there's something, you know, circumventing right. the legal process to effectively engage in, in, in a prisoner swap, which I guess sort of justifies this hostage taking, if that's what it is. Ian, where does the case go from here? You mentioned that the judge in the extradition hearing is now reserved reserved ruling. When do we expect to get a, a decision here? Yeah, uh, we're not sure, but um, there are he there are more appearances uh, scheduled from in in March and in April and in June wow. and then in October. Um, you know, the the 
the biggest the next substantial hearings are in in April, late April. Uh, so uh, we might hear about um, about uh, this application to dismiss uh, before then. What are people in the Chinese community saying about this case? Yeah, I mean, Ms. Meng's case is it does divide the community. I think that um, among mainland Chinese, uh, mainly mainly mainland Chinese. Um, you're going to see quite a lot of sympathy for Ms. Meng because they do see her as having been caught in uh, this big geopolitical battle between the United States and China. And they see in this, you know, echoes of the U.S. trade war. And, uh, you know, in fairness, uh, Donald Trump has uh, held out the prospect of using Ms. Meng as a pawn. You know, she, he said that he might intervene in her case if that worked to uh, the economic interests of America. So you know, it's not without um, not without some sort of evidence that uh, people are saying this, and that, that's also the point that's been raised by her defence. It wasn't discussed this week, but her lawyers have also said that they will raise um, the issue of, of uh, political interference, and that uh, this case may basically just be a political prosecution. Ian, thanks for coming on. No worries, Mike. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it a lot. That is Ian Young. He is the Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post with the latest on the Meng Wanzhou extradition process. Up and running in the city of Vancouver today, one day after receiving provincial approvals to operate yesterday. Let's check in now with Michael Van Hemmen. He is the head of Western Canada Operations for Uber. A busy day for him. Michael, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, how's it going today? It's it is hectic out there, Mike, but it is such an exciting day. I think, as you and your listeners know, uh, we've been working on this really since 2012. And personally, I've been working on this with the team for the last almost five years. And it is exhilarating to be able to turn on the app and to be able to see cars moving. It is amazing to start to talk to drivers as they're earning money. And uh, I, I hope people will be patient. As the service won't be as reliable as it is in other cities uh, to start, it always takes time to adjust, and some of the existing uh, regulatory requirements make it even more difficult, but uh, we're looking forward to uh, a long partnership with, with riders and drivers in cities here in the Metro Vancouver region. How, how many Uber cars you got out there today? Uh, so, so it, it varies at different times, right? So drivers are able to go on and offline uh, when they choose. So it actually, it, it changes it changes by the minute. Um, but we're always looking for more. So if there are people out there who have uh, a class four license or a class one or a class two, you can go to drive.uber.com and we are working to make sure people are able to complete the sign up process as, as quickly as possible, get those background checks done uh, as quickly as possible to uh, allow people to go online and start making money. If I can, Mike, I just want to say one thing too. Yeah. I just want to say actually a big, a big thank you um, to, to British Columbians. Uh, the reason this eventually got here is because uh, British Columbians were willing to say to elected officials that they wanted the same transportation options, they wanted the same income opportunities that were available elsewhere in the province. And also, frankly, I think to the media on this one, uh, sometimes, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but sometimes the media gets a bit of flack from people, but I think on this one, uh, the media have, have been part of the the questioning that has, that has allowed this to be able to to really take place. So, um, really, more transportation options are here because we all pushed for it together. 
Okay, when I was, I was speaking earlier today, Michael, to a city of Vancouver official who said that Lyft has got uh, 600 vehicles basically licensed in the city right now. Do you know how many vehicles Uber licenses are out there? Uh, so with the city of Vancouver process, when the, at the time when we applied for our business, uh, business license with the city of Vancouver, uh, we didn't have vehicles fully through the affiliation process. Having signed the last legal agreement, drivers as they sign that final that final agreement are able to go online so yeah. it really is that last step and so we'll be reporting those numbers uh through the city of vancouver process um in, in the coming weeks is that as that uh, well, how, as how that many do you, but out. how many do you got now what can you tell me now how many drivers uh, you got out there so, so so i can't give you a specific you don't want number to tell me. okay yeah, I, I can't give you a specific okay. specific number on that how, right how long are you mentioned that you're encouraging people to be patient um what have you heard today from from the drivers, uh, and how long are people how long are people waiting for an Uber car today? Yeah, so so we see some people are getting it in a few minutes, but a lot of people are seeing um, wait times of ten fifteen minutes, and some people are seeing no cars available. You know, today is today is is day one. We've launched across as large of a service area as we thought um, would would be would be responsible for people to to receive service over the next uh, next while. And we're encouraged that we, we saw our second best day ever for, for eligible signups to become a driver yesterday. I'm hoping that number will go up even higher today. And as we add um, more and more uh, drivers who are qualified to, to be able to access the app, um, I expect service to get better and better. Speaking to Michael Van Hemmen, he's the head of Western Canada Operations for Uber. So right now you're just confined to, is it the city of Vancouver? Or tell me about the operating area that you got right now. Yeah, so we actually, we've, we've operated across a wider region. So you can operate, we're operating across um, part of West Vancouver, the city of North Vancouver, district of North Vancouver, and then through the Tri-Cities all the way through to UBC. Wow. And then as, okay. and then as far south, and then as far south as as um, Ladner, and then across we, we cut through to uh, through kind of uh, through the Newton and Fleetwood uh, neighborhoods and Panorama Ridge uh, neighborhoods of Surrey. Um, those are all in the initial service area. Um, I have family and a lot of friends in in South Surrey and in Langley, and and they're pinging me, you know, disappointed that ride sharing and Uber isn't available. Uh, right now in their communities, I, I, I feel the exact same way. Um, the class four license restriction is the reason why we weren't able to do that um, because there aren't enough drivers who signed up, uh, signed up with the app to be able to, to, to meet demand across such a, such a large service area. Okay, um, but, but did, we hope did, to be there as soon as we can. Did you say you are offering some service in, in parts of Surrey? We are. Okay, what about the business? Don't you need a business license there from the city of Surrey? Doug McCallum said he's not going to give you a business license. So, so it's an interesting situation where Surrey doesn't actually have a business license requirement for ride sharing. Oh. Um, and so actually across the region, the only uh, municipality that has adopted a new business license is the city of Vancouver. So we've received the city of Vancouver business license. Other municipalities like in the Tri-Cities have passed one, but it's not enforced yet. And everyone, with the exception of Surrey, who is only acting as an observer, every municipality in the region um, is, is working together on the intermunicipal business license process that's going through Mayor's Council. And we're really yeah. encouraged by the steps we've seen taken by them that something will be in place for the whole region really quickly, and we look forward to collaborating with them on that. What do you say to Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum who put out a statement a little earlier today 
saying he hasn't changed his opinion. He doesn't want Uber and Lyft coming into his city. That he says you guys are unfair to the taxi business and the city of Surrey won't issue a business license. What do you say to this guy? I say a significant number of drivers who are using the Uber app live in Surrey and call Surrey home. Um, when we look at the number of riders that we have and where the app is being opened, Surrey is high, high on that list. And we know that public polling has shown that 80% of Surrey residents say that they want their community to have the same transportation options as the rest of the region. And we're committed to doing so and working with the mayor uh, to, to ensure that uh, taxi and ride sharing can coexist. They do all across okay. uh, the country and they can do so in Surrey too. And Surrey uh, can benefit from these existing transportation op- op- options. Michael, are you, uh, you guys still being sued by the uh, taxi companies or are the taxi companies still suing to have your operating license revoked? What's going on there? Uh, so... Right now, they, I don't believe that they take an action directly against us. They're, they're, uh, they have some concerns with the Passenger Transportation Board and um, the rules that would allow ride-sharing to exist. I think it's, it's not surprising that, um, that the existing industry has, has been you know, pretty consistent in their, in their, in their push to, to not allow our, our business model. Yeah, so, I mean, they're, they're suing. They're, they continue to fight you guys in court. What, what do you say to, I mean, I know a lot of taxi drivers actually listen to this show. I mean, what would you say to people who are taxi drivers? Maybe they sunk a lot of money into buying a share of a taxi license. Yeah, so, so to those individuals, I would say, if you're simply a driver, um, do what works best for your family. If, if you want to drive ride sharing some of the time, and if you want to drive taxi some of the time, that's totally okay. If you want to drive just one or the other, uh, power to you at Uber. Our our job and my job is to ensure that we're providing the most attractive opportunity uh, for you and and trying to attract you to to drive with with the Uber app. Uh, at the same time, to in, to investors and, and and to those like those that go on now, um, we see the taxi industry and the ride sharing industry coexisting all across North America. Um, in Toronto, uh, fairly recently, the largest taxi company said they had their best year ever. So it's, mm. it's something that taxi and ride-sharing can coexist. It's about providing more options uh, for, for riders to get around, but it's also about providing more, more opportunities for, for drivers to, to make money as well. Should people feel safe if they get into an Uber vehicle? I, I had a caller on the open line earlier today who supports the taxi companies, uh, referencing some of the reports that we've seen about incidents of sexual assault, by uber drivers in the united states we've talked about that before that report uh and he says i wouldn't let my daughter get into an uber car what do you what do you say to people who have concerns like that yeah i would say that safety is critically critically important and even one incident is is too many uh we've put in place numerous safety checks beyond background checks so i guess we need to start there so every driver who wants to drive with uber or any ride sharing company has to go through a background check that is the exact same standard as taxi drivers, right. not only in British Columbia, but, but across the country. It is the exact same standard, whether you're a taxi driver or whether you're an Uber driver. Yeah. So Uber drivers, Uber drivers who, who, who want to drive with Uber have to go through uh, a criminal record check. Um, in, in, addition, in, addition to, uh, in addition to that, we built in a whole bunch of safety features. You see your driver in advance. You see the make and model of their vehicle, you're able to track the vehicle as it comes to you in real time, and you can share that information with a family member uh, or 
uh, someone else you care about so they can monitor your trip in real time. And then we're always rolling out news features. I was talking to a driver today and they're like, I'm having trouble going in, uh, logging onto the app to be a driver. And I'm like, oh, it's because you have to actually press this red banner and then take a selfie because we want to ensure that the person who is accessing the driver account is actually you. So you have to show us, uh, take a picture of your face in real time, use facial recognition software to make the person who is authorized, to make sure that the person who is logging into that account is actually the person who wow. is allowed to be driving that account. Okay, so we're, we're always adding more features to in, improve safety. It needs to be okay. a cornerstone of, of ride sharing. Let's take a couple of quick calls here. Dave and Delta, hi, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, I was interested in becoming a, an Uber driver, but uh, the requirements for the car is, uh, has to be like a nine-year-old or newer. And I'm not willing to switch out my car. Michael, what do you say to him? Yeah, so that's that's a concern that we've heard from a number from a number of people is that if if my car passes an inspection, why why does it need to be a certain age? That's a provincial requirement, um, not an Uber requirement. So the province has said it can be no more than ten years old. Um, but because of that, we are looking to roll out in the near future solutions um, that allow people to get access access to vehicles. So it's not something that we own, but but um, so that people who who do need to make money on demand might be able to to find a solution there, but we hear you. We understand there's a frustration, but that really is a provincial requirement. Let's go to Jason in Vancouver. Hi. Yeah, no, I won't waste your time. My vehicle's 14 years old, and I actually could use the extra money. You should allow cars that are older to drive because those are the people that could probably use the extra money, not the people with the newer cars. Okay, Michael. Uh, 100% agree with you. 100% agree. Uh, that's that's something that you can bring forward to your MLA, that it's a provincial regulation, um, and, and so we're bound by that. Rick there are other options, though, as well. Sorry, yeah. on, on that, though, there are yeah. other options as well. If you do want to make money on demand, it's not driving people, but things like Uber Eats, and, and, and that is an option for people with, with older vehicles to still make money. Okay, when you were mentioning earlier you were examining other options where you might be able to get access to a, a vehicle that does qualify, how are you going to do that? So there's a bunch of, um, effectively, there's a bunch of car rental companies in the United States who say you can rent a car and we'll allow you to drive it with, with Uber um, wow. because the insurance is, insurance is covered. And so, and so that's something that we're exploring to see if it's something that people would like to see in, in Vancouver. Let's go to Rick and Langley. Hi, Rick. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Good, good. Hey, I'm um, just wondering, if I was up to go out and get my class four and become an Uber driver, can I take a, another passenger with me, like my wife, for instance, and, and another passenger to take into town, or is that allowed? Michael? Great question. So, so at, this, at this time, uh, the answer is no with standard ride sharing. Um, we do have a product called Uber Pool that does allow more than one rider to be it to be in the vehicle at a time, but we don't have that launched in, in Vancouver at this time, and it's more of a, a carpooling product. As we get more reliable and the service grows, that's a product that we're looking to uh, looking to consider. Michael, okay, thanks, thanks for thank you for the call. Michael, thanks for taking time in a busy day. No worries. Thanks so much again to you and your listeners, Mike. All the best. Okay, appreciate it. Michael Van Hemmen, he is the head of operations for Uber. On Western in Western Canada, speaking on the day that Uber gets up and running, let's check in now with Karen McSherry. She's a chef and president and founder of the Gourmet Warehouse. And we're going to take a little look ahead to food trends in 2020. Karen, it's nice to talk to you again. Hi, Mike. How are you? 
I'm doing great. How'd your turkey come out this year? Oh, it was awesome. Can I just yeah? say that I'm a complete 100% fan of um, Uber. I love Uber, and I'm so happy. <laughs> well, you there. and a lot of other people now, love, I, love, I wonder... Love. In the food business, I mean, you really cater to the home chef, but I, I know a lot of people think Uber and Lyft are going to get more people maybe to go out and have a meal out, especially and if they they're going to have a couple of because now they can, get, they can get home. They don't have yeah. to worry about being stood up. Anyways, I'm, I wanted to, I know that we don't have a lot of time, so I was just um, in, the, in San Francisco for the Fancy Food Show and the 2020 trends that are sort of focusing around what, what is coming for you know, what you're going to see a lot of now. Um, and then I've got a really incredible stat that will just make everybody cry, but we'll get to that at the very end. So not surprisingly, Mike, plant-based leads the way. Um, it's, it's critical. The, the critical thought moves a bit to the side with regards to meat replacement because if you read those ingredients, they are higher calorie than real meat. So you have to look at what you're eating so that it's not too manipulated and healthy. Right, right. You mean like a Beyond Meat burger? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, read the ingredients. That's what I'm saying to everybody. Um, Fermented foods are on the rise for sure. Kimchi... uh, the the you know the darling condiment of Korea was the toast of the town, and now its cousin gochujang is is the lead. It's got a complex spice, and it's made of fermented soybeans, glutinous rice, and intense seasonings. And I think Korean food is really coming onto the forefront. And who doesn't love a good bibimbap, right? <laughs> sure. I don't think I've ever tried it, actually. Okay, we need to talk about that next yeah, time because okay. it's really good. <laughs> okay. um, in the way of protein, what um, is sort of trending is tiny fish are leading the way. Ooh. Anchovy, herring, sardines are moving up beyond the legume-based protein, so you get a real big punch from a small fry fish. Uh, you know what? I think that anchovies are an ingredient that maybe a lot of home cooks might be a little nervous about using, right? But it can I be know, really, uh, really good. They really pack a powerful punch. Yeah. And just for all of you home cooks that are listening, when you, you do use anchovy and anchovy fillets, and you're just like, really? I can't even. So when you're frying or sauteing your onion and garlic, put your anchovy fillets in with that and watch it completely dissolve, absorb into what you're making, and all you do is get this sort of umami flavor, but you can't pinpoint it that it's a stinky little fish. (laughs) It works really well. (laughs) Right? Uh, Dairy-free continues its rise to power. Uh, Oat, nut-based milks are really coming forward. Oat is sort of the new kid on the block, but that is really a big thing. There isn't anywhere you can go that you, if you say coffee, could I get soy or almond milk with that? So now oat milk is holding um, its own. Oat milk, okay. Um, I'm not a fan, but I'm going to have to tell it to everybody. Drinking vinegars have long been a fermented gut favorite of Europeans. They drink vinegar and it, you know, holds... It's huge in probiotics, amino acids, and the antioxidants. So perhaps pushing a kombucha, the current probiotic, to the side, I think it's a drinking vinegar. Drink vinegar? I know. I knew you wouldn't like that. And I'm telling you, Mike, I'm not a fan either. I'd rather drink wine any day. So I'll just make that my probiotic. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm delivering the news. (laughs) Um, Heirloom flowers that are hand-ground, so not your regular off-the-shelf flowers, flowers that still hold a lot of the kernel and the husk so that it's really healthy and full of fiber and nutrients, not 
like triple ground to nothing, that it's just, you know, powder. Mm. Okay. Um, sugar substitutes and their less than desirable substance will lose steam. Beware of no added sugar. No added to what? No added sugar to what? Read the labels. Less sugar again when it says that, but less than what? You know, I'm less, less, they, they make these claims, but they don't compare them to anything. Okay, is that something you can cut back in on your on your home cooking as well? Yeah, sugar. Yeah. You can definitely. And, and flavor with agave, flavor with honey, flavor with those kind of things because those are real foods and sugar isn't all that good for you. And I know we don't have a lot of time, but this is, a, this is a, as Mike Campbell offers up every Saturday morning, here's the shocking stat in okay. food. All right. Okay, French President Emmanuel Macron is dedicating a rescue mission to save more than 1,000 of their beloved cafes. We've all sat in those beautiful cafes if you've been lucky enough to be in Paris or engaging with, you know, having a glass of champagne. And, and as they do, they smoke the big, strong Jitten cigarettes in France. <laughs> sure. But here's the sad part. More than 150,000 cafes have closed in the past 50 years in small villages and towns in France. Oh. This is their president. This is the president actually taking action, and he is he is actually giving a hundred million dollars to correct this. Wow. He is he is dedicating it, so he wants this to really you know. Please don't quit. Don't be be a part of the French community, the French way of life, the French everything, because they just can't make it, and they're closing. And are it's they, sad. Why are they closing down? People going to Starbucks? Uh, I don't even. I yeah, there's Starbucks yeah. in France, which is a sad thing, and okay. and and they just can't afford the rent. Oh, we've heard that before. Oh yes, that sounds and familiar. Fam- and and you know what? It's a mom and pop. It was the grandma and grandpa. Now it's mom and pop, and now the kids turn to take over, and they don't want to serve up coffee anymore. Oh. Well, we'll see what happens with those cafes. That is a shocking stat, I'm sad. Actually. I'm just yeah. sad. So I will sit in every cafe when I go to France all day long and give them money and order coffee. Well, well maybe gotta, I'll order champagne because they order that too. You, they can you've got to do your part. Where is, um, where is Gourmet Warehouse located again? Uh, Hastings and Clark in Vancouver. Right. Uh, 33 free parking spots in the back, which is good. And yeah, we have, have everything you want, nothing you need. Karen, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks, Mike. Have a good weekend. The same to you. That's Karen McSherry from Gourmet Warehouse.